0: To each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or sabre a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am honored to share an episode where the table has been turned on me. I had the honor of being interviewed by Natalie McLean. If you are unfamiliar with her, here is her self-claimed biography. To fund her late-night Venus habits, Natalie McLean holds down day jobs as a wine writer, speaker, and judge. An accredited sommelier, she is a member of the National Capital Sommelier Guild, the Wine Writers Circle, and several French wine societies with complicated and impressive names. Funny, brainy, and unapologetically tipsy, her goal in life is to intimidate those crusty wine stewards at fine restaurants with her staggering knowledge. So if you are a regular listener of this podcast, you know I got the opportunity to interview Natalie also. So if you missed it, please go back to episodes 253 and 254 to listen to those I am not used to being on this side of the microphone, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. And while you're listening, please take a moment to rate and review Exploring the Wine Glass. Ratings are now available pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts, and they are so beneficial to the podcast. They allow other listeners to find this podcast. So I would appreciate taking that moment to rate and review Exploring the Wine Glass. Sláinte! Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, day service, champagne specialist, and WSET level two graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass.
1: You were in Bordeaux. You participated in the en primeur tasting. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You get to
0: taste the wine that is bottled from barrel, and you're tasting the wines prior to their release. All of these premier tasters are there and they rate the wines. This is what allows them to determine what price point they will do. And it also allows them to sell the wine before it's even released, which is... Brilliant marketing. It's kind of like a futures market. Exactly. It's the original futures market is what it is.
1: Do you have a thirst to learn about wine? Do you love stories about wonderfully obsessive people, hauntingly beautiful places, and amusingly awkward social situations? Well, that's the blend here on the Unreserved Wine Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie McLean, and each week I share with you unfiltered conversations with celebrities in the wine world, as well as confessions from my own tipsy journey as I write my third book on this subject. I'm so glad you're here. Now pass me that bottle, please, and let's get started. Welcome to episode 181. What's it like to participate in the coveted en primeur tasting of the new vintage of Bordeaux wines in France while they're still in the barrels aging? Which Spanish foods should you pair with the Fabulous red wine, Monastrel. And how does politics influence wine? You'll hear those stories and more in my chat with Lori Budd, who is the host of the popular podcast, Exploring the Glass. Now, on a personal note, before we dive into the show with the continuing story of publishing my wine memoir, Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Depression, and Drinking Too Much. So, I have an official publication date for my book. May 9th, 2023. So it's just under a year from today. Ah! (laughs) The countdown begins. It's been a long journey. My memoir is based on the most terrible vintage of my life, 2012, and I've either been thinking about it or writing about it ever since. As I mentioned, my agent and I closed the deal with my publisher just before Christmas Timelines in the publishing industry are notoriously long, and supply chain issues, with paper shortages especially, are making them even longer these days. The book cover will be developed soon, as that's needed to get the memoir listed on Amazon, Chapters Indigo, Barnes & Noble, and so on. So if you'd like to see, get a sneak peek at the design concepts and give me some feedback, let me know. As promised, I'll share one beta reader review with you now, and this is from Kathy Flanagan in Vancouver, British Columbia. I really enjoyed her book. I think it has universal appeal for anyone who's been through any number of scenarios, from bullying to heartbreak, whether it be from a breakdown of a relationship or a loss of someone you love, to challenges at work due to misogyny or other forms of prejudice, or just because of jealous colleagues, etc. I suspect that it will mainly be women who read this book, but I would love it if men would as well. Maybe after all the publicity about the Me Too movement, that will be the case. I think people will feel validated and recognized after reading this memoir, and will hopefully have a few more tools with which to deal with their own issues of loss, depression, anxiety, lack of confidence. I agree that going through these experiences such as hers is the best way to learn life lessons. But hearing from others who've been there and getting some witchy wisdom can be very helpful, especially in the early days. As she says, the process is like grieving, and you do have to go through the steps. I also really enjoyed all the info about the wine world and her experiences in that area. It is fascinating, and I think her writing is excellent. The book Wine Girl, which I also read, is a book that I recently enjoyed that is most similar but they are different in significant ways and both give unique perspectives and life lessons, entertaining and educational. Kathy also reviewed the companion wine guide for book clubs and other groups, and she said, I was thinking at the end of this memoir that something like this guide would be a perfect accompaniment, and here it is. This is better than I imagined. I loved it and thought it was just right to partner with the book. Excellent job all round. Five stars. Thank you, Kathy. I've posted a link to a blog post called Diary of a Book Launch in the show notes at NatalieMcLane.com forward slash 181. This is where I share more behind-the-scenes stories about the journey of taking this memoir from idea to publication. If you want a more intimate insider seat beside me on this journey, please let me know that you'd like to become a beta reader and get a sneak peek at the manuscript. Email me at natalie at Okay, on with the show. Lori Budd began her career as a microbiologist, but she says her need for excitement led her into adventure education, teaching students how to rock climb, zip line, and tie all those important survival knots. Along the way, she fell in love with wine and graduated from the prestigious University of California at Davis Enology Program, along with completing several certifications from other wine programs. She and her husband own Dressina wines in Paso Robles. She's consumed by stories that unfold as each glass is poured and shares those in her award winning blog and podcast called Exploring the Glass. And she joins us now from Fresno, California. Hi, Lori. It's so great for you to be here with us. Hi, Natalie. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. I'm like honored. (laughs) Oh, the pleasure and honor is all mine, Lori. I just love your (laughs) podcast and what you do with your various channels. So, before we dive into your journey in wine, let's begin with some of your more memorable moments during your career. I was fascinated by this. You just mentioned it, but I want to hear the story. You were guests of the Rothschild, Rothschilds, Rothschilds, you can tell me, which. Yes. <laughs> for their ballet competition. So tell us about that. First, tell me how to pronounce that correctly. I just don't crack open a bottle of Rothschild, Rothschild. or Rothschild <laughs> every night. So, so
0: <laughs> technically it is Rothschild, but All of us Americans are, I guess, Canadians um, (laughs) actually say Rothschild, but yeah, technically it is Rothschild. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. I was lucky enough to win the Melissa May Blog Award. And when I was there, the host was Clerk Mion, So that's how we got to meet them, all three of them together, all, you know, the two brothers and sister together. And then we became like brand ambassadors for them. And, oh, and
1: tell us who they are in the world of wine, the Rothschilds. Like, oh, okay. for those who may not know, who aren't drinking it on a weekday. <laughs> wow. They
0: are the family of wine Mouton Rothschild, Clerc Mayon. They actually also own Opus One in Napa. But they are a very prestigious family. They did come from banking, but they just are the family. And no, except for when I was there, I cannot afford to be drinking their wines.
1: Right, because it comes out at like five or $600 a pop, uh, like a yes. bottle? Maybe more these days. It's one of the top-ranked Bordeaux first growths, like one of the five. Yeah, Yes,
0: it is a first growth, and it is honestly incredible wines. And they are incredible people. They are not at all bourgeois. They really are kind of very down to earth, very pleasant, very fun people to be around with. But a few months after that, they invited us back. They have a ballet competition every other year, I believe it is. And it is just from the ballet schools around Bordeaux in that area. And it's an academic award so that it gives grants And it was incredible to see these beautiful dances go on. And then a top male and a top female ballet dancer were awarded the championship, I guess you would call it. It was beautiful. And what's more incredible, I was in France for 36 hours. By the time I left New Jersey, because I was in New Jersey that time, to the time I returned, it was like in, out, bam, bam, because I couldn't miss a day of work.
1: (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. That is incredible. And so were you sort of in the audience watching? Were you one of the judges? I mean, how did you... Oh, gosh, no. What was going on? <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. We were there. It happened at Clerc
0: Mayon. It was beautiful setting. It was at sunset. So we had a nice little introductory party beforehand, like appetizers and of course their champagne. And then we were escorted to this beautiful tent that was on the property we watched the ballet and then the presentation of the awards and then we had some major festivities and got to drink some spectacular wine including one that i will never forget we were married in 1995 and i got to drink 1995 mouton
1: wow it it honestly might have ruined me because it was <laughs> so good I'll bet. Oh my gosh, what an experience. And does that tie in now? I know they're quite into the arts because they commission a new label from a different artist every year for their flagship wine. They've had, you know, Picasso, they've had the creme de la creme. So is this an extension of that, of their participation in the arts?
0: Absolutely. They are very involved in the arts through everything just the dedication they have to it, the love they have to it, and how much they give back to
1: it is all part of the family for generations, I believe. That's wonderful. Wow. So you were also in Bordeaux. I, I guess this must have been a different trip, but you participated in the En primeur Tasting. Tell us what that is and what it felt like. It was a wonderful experience. I think
0: Probably is a once in a lifetime experience, although I do know people go back and back and I would love to return. But what it is, is you get to taste the wine that is bottled from barrel. So you're tasting out of bottles, but it's the wine that's actually still in barrel. And it's the vintage that is going to be released. And the concept is that you're tasting the wines prior to their release. And this is what sets the price point for when it actually does get released. So everybody who is there, that's where the James Sucklins of the world are. And all of these premier tasters are there and they rate the wines. And this is what allows them to determine what price point they will do. And it also allows them to sell the wine before it's even released, which is-
1: Brilliant marketing.
0: Yeah, how they get to put their money back into- the next vintage, because if you're in the wine industry, you know it, it's a lot of money intake, and it's years before you get to see that money back, if
1: you get to see that money back. So, especially if you're aging the wine in oak barrels. So, on average, how long would these wines have been in barrel? I know it would differ by chateau, but were they generally two, three years? Two, three years was what we were tasting generally. Yes. Okay. It's kind of like a futures market. It's exactly. It's, great. it's the original futures market is what it is. Yes, oh, that's great. So how many wines did you taste?
0: Oh, I can't even tell you. we were we were whisked away from Chateau to Chateau to Chateau. And then each individual region of Bordeaux had one place where you could taste all of their wines. You know, we would go to Saint Demion. Um, and then saint Estèphe, and then Sauternes. So we were tasting multiple, it was giant rooms, and you were tasting multiple chateaus in each of the rooms. And then we were having dinners at different chateaus every night. It was beautiful. And now, a word from our sponsor. Exploring the Wine Glass is brought to you by Dracaena Wines. Dracina Wines is an artisan winery located in Paso Robles, California. They have been producing wine since 2013. Their first vintage began with one wine, their classic Cabernet Franc, which received a 91 in Wine Enthusiast. Since then, they have increased production as well as expanded their portfolio. Have received many accolades, including multiple double gold medals and consistent 90 plus ratings. Visit their website www.dracinawines.com or use the link in the show notes to schedule a private tasting and to see their entire portfolio. Purchase your award-winning wine and let Dracina Wines help turn your moments into great memories.
1: Oh, wow. Did the wines taste really tannic and were they hard to take or were they already tasting good? I was told to be
0: prepared that it was a very different tasting. So I think that because I went in with that mindset that it prepared me. I think that if you thought you were tasting wine that was ready to drink, we all know Bordeaux, some Bordeauxs, they're meant to age. But I think that if you went in with that mentality, yeah, you would be, ooh, but If you went in knowing that, listen, these are still in barrel, so they're going to be heavily tannic and you learn to taste through that tannin and you can start to see where that fruit is going to be and how that wine's going to grow up or age a little better.
1: Sure. And for those who are not familiar with tannins, of course, that's that furry mouth, that astringent, dry feeling you get like eating walnuts or drinking over steep tea. So wine in its youth, especially a Bordeaux blend that has Cabernet, Sauvignon, Franc, Merlot, and so on, is going to have those tannins generally. So which Chateau stood out for you, like the dinners? like Tell us about one where you went and what was it like? What were they serving? What was the Chateau like? <laughs> so I am probably the only absolute wine lover who does not like food. Wow, that is a mark of
0: distinction for sure. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. As my husband says, I eat to live, I don't live to eat. I am, for the most part, a vegetarian, so it's very different. And when people ask me for wine pairings, I'm like, uh, well, it it should go with this. But since I don't eat that, I don't really know. You know, I don't have one in particular. I was actually kind of awestruck to be around so many incredible winemakers and to be talking to them. And them asking me questions about how I make wine, I, you know, I was like blown away that these major chateaus are curious as to how I make wine and things like that. So the food really wasn't, to me, that point. It was just talking to these people. And I guess you hold them up to, or I held them up to this pedestal. Oh my gosh, you're first, you know, crew
1: chateau here. And you're talking to me about how I made wine, you know? (laughs) Wow. Yeah, no, that's great. And were they dinners like long tables, eloquent banquets? Yeah. Like, did everybody get dressed up? Yes, you were
0: getting dressed up for the majority of the dinners. Yes, you were. Some of them were more walk-around cocktail type things where it was more appetizers and things, but the majority of the actual dinners, it was. You were sitting in these beautiful rooms and very long tables and you were getting dressed up.
1: Wow! Did you get to talk to any of the wine writers that go there regularly? I did not. There were six of us that
0: won the award and we were kind of whisked, you know, okay, going this way, going this way, going this way. And we tended to stay together. So.
1: Sure. What is Malesium? What is that organization? malesme So Malesium is actually
0: a importer. So there's a couple of them. There's one in New York. There's a huge one in New York, but they import Bordeaux wines. They sell Bordeaux wines basically. So it's like um, a Zaki's or okay. a JJ yeah. Buckley's. That's what they are. But they hold the this Wine Riders Award every year, and there's different categories. There's food pairings, there's travel, there's photography, and then there's a winner for America, and then there's a winner for European or outside of America. So there's six winners, and you all get swept away to this incredible experience. That sounds wonderful. Do you have to write about Bordeaux? No, actually the article that I wrote about that one was actually a food pairing, believe it or not. It was about Portugal's history and how it correlates to the wine that it was produced and the food that they eat. How the turbulent history relates to the wine. That was what I wrote. So, huh. how
1: did the turbulent history relate to the wine?
0: It's similar to a lot of other areas, you know, as governments come and go, some governments just want the wine to be produced in mass quantities, and we don't want it to be good. <laughs> we just want a lot of it. And then, as the governments change and regulations change, they start to realize that maybe not as large quantities, but smaller quantities and better quality is where it is. And that's why Portugal's wines are
1: really rather exquisite. Wow. Great. My goodness. And then you also had a visit to, now is it Jamila, Jamila, the region, Spain? Humia. I've always yes. read these words, but you know, pronouncing them, if you haven't been to the region, it's like, okay, <laughs> Humia in Spain. Humia. So I actually just
0: returned from there in November, was when I went, and it was a wonderful press trip. We went and we learned all about um, uh, Moveg. The grape, yes. It was incredible because they have all of these regions. Many of their vines are ungrafted, which is kind of unheard of, you know. Like
1: pre phylloxera before the Phyloxera ruined all the vineyards. But yeah, that is amazing. How old would those ungrafted vines be? Some of them are like 50 years old.
0: Some are older. And what was interesting, again, politics come into play with winemaking. Once they joined the EU, they're no longer allowed to use ungrafted vines. They have to use grafted vines. Oh my goodness. As the government <laughs> says no more ungrafted vines. So oh, as they no. lose the grafted vines, they have to use rootstock, you know, and graft them over. But it just was incredible. It was such a beautiful area, so mountainous and open. It was beautiful. And once again, the people I, I think the wine industry across the board, no matter where you go to, is just a welcoming community. But the wines, the wines are incredible there.
1: What do they taste like? What is Movedra Monastrell taste like from that region? So the article I
0: wrote that was published in the Vintner Project is about how three different winemakers approach Monastrell differently. And what happens is Monastrell is kind of a beast. It's a bold, rustic, wild wine, you know, and a lot of tannins to it. And done 100% is beautiful in its own way. Unblended, you mean? Correct. Correct. Unblended. And what's happening is that people's palettes are changing and they're not wanting that rusticness anymore. So winemakers need to adapt how they are producing this wine. And Monastrell is called the Queen of Homia. So they're resting their laurels on this grape. They have to make sure that they're making it the best way they can. So the article that I wrote is about three different winemakers and how they're approaching providing that style of Monastrell that people are looking for, which is really a lighter and brighter Monastrell. They're looking for not so much rusticness. And, you know, one of uh, Vina Elena is harvesting early. They're always like one of the first vineyard sites to harvest. So they're getting that bright acidity out of it, you know.
1: Before it over-ripens and you get more of the heavier fruit expression. Correct, More alcohol.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Getting that red yep. fruit versus the darker fruit. Another winery is blending it with Tempranillo. So Tempranillo Mm. brightens it up and lightens it. And it's still Monastrell because of the percentage, but they're throwing in some Tempranillo in there. And then Castilla is actually, as opposed to paying attention so much in the vineyard of what they're doing, they pay more finesse into the winemaking where they're taking it and they are taking one section that they are harvesting and fermenting whole cluster. Mm-hmm. One is through gentle maceration, and then the other one, they've completely destemmed it. And lending those to be the perfect, you know, taking the best of the best of each one. So it's interesting to see how each winemaker's philosophy comes into play, but they're all getting that same result of that lighter, brighter
1: monastrel. Right. Because the stems and so on has a lot of that harsher tannin in it if they're thrown in there with the grapes. Correct. Right. And how do you think the Monestrel from that region, I know know they've got some different styles going on now that they're lightening up, how does it differ from, say, the Movedra of Southern France?
0: I think the Southern France is more rustic. I think it is. It's a little more tannic, not out of control. You know, I don't want to make it sound like it's out of control, but I think they're doing more of natural. They're tending the vineyards to get the best fruit, the highest quality, but they're not necessarily looking for that lighter brighterness. They're looking for that rusticness that kind of put that blanket
1: on and cozy up with it, you know? Uh So it's a bigger wine, alcohol-wise, tannin-wise and so on. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. And then what did you see people pairing with this wine while you were in Spain? Oh, a lot of
0: seafood, a lot of paella. I was living on, and I never say it correctly, gachamilla. Okay, we'll go with that. I was in love. I didn't care. I was having it every meal and I was happy. And it was what they serve the vineyard workers. You know, as they're out in the vineyards working all day or whatever, some of the workers will come and they will create this dish on this big pan in the middle of the vineyard and it was pure carbohydrates. So I was in heaven,
1: you know? And uh, Is it paella? Is it another name for paella or what was in the- It was-
0: Dough, it was flour. They could add protein to it, but for mine, they didn't. But you know, you could add protein to it or whatever. It, it literally was a quick pick me up for the vineyard so that the workers would be working hard, working hard, sit down, eat, blah, 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 and then go back out. But no, it wasn't paella. It was nothing like paella.
1: Oh, my goodness. I have
0: a video on my Instagram feed of them making it. It's oh, really? pretty cool to watch. Yeah.
1: What is your Instagram handle? So it's Exploring the Wine Glass. Okay. We'll link to that in the show notes too, but I'm sure folks will be curious to see what that looks like. What other dishes, traditional Spanish dishes, did they pair with Monestrel? Oh my gosh, the ham, the hamon. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. And I learned this,
0: that the better quality hamon actually, when they hold the plate up, it sticks to the plate.
1: <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. Why does it do that? What's in it? Yeah,
0: I think because of the fats, that, <laughs> because of oh, the fat okay. that's in it, okay. it just sticks to it. But it was pretty funny. We're, a couple of them were like, oh, look, we were in these restaurants and they're like, oh, and I'm like, oh, they're
1: holding up the plate again. <laughs> Oh, it's like throwing spaghetti on the wall or something, the yes, Spanish version. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> wow.
0: Anything else? It was funny because the two other females that I were with, they're like, I'm going to say I'm a vegetarian next time. <laughs>
1: uh, they didn't want to eat all the fat. The food was
0: incredible. I had my first quail egg which was really good. It was so cute. It came out and I'm like, look at how tiny this egg is. And they're like, it's a quail egg. I was like, well, I've never seen one before. This is kind of cool. Do
1: they taste different from
0: regular eggs? It did. It was so much more flavorful. Really? Yeah. What kind really... of flavors come through? Like,
1: You know, I don't know.
0: Eggs to me are kind of bland. Like they just taste like the salt and pepper or, you know, I put hot sauce on everything. So it, you know, it needs to taste like that. But this, it just was flavorful. I don't know, maybe they flavored it, but it tasted like a to go to wine
1: terminology. It was a fuller body. <laughs> fuller egg. bodied egg. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> That's great. And now you're planning to go to Navarra? I am. So
0: I actually the 28th, I will be going to Navarra to learn about Garnacha.
1: Oh, another famous grape of Spain. Now, situate where are those two regions in the country? Ooh. Northeast, I know, is Humia. And I am not
0: 100% sure where Navarra is. I will learn that when I go there. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. Granacha, that's the flagship grape. And is it famous for anything else? I think that's their flagship.
0: You know, I'm sure they make other wines there, but as Humia is voting on Monastrell, Navarra is Granacha, which is Grenache.
1: Yeah. Why Navarra? Why did you decide to go there? What intrigued you? These are press trips. So I'm
0: going there to learn about the region, to write articles about the region. So I'm so excited. Other than Bordeaux, and I did go to Hungary for Cab Franc Day. These are like my first real press trips. So I'm really excited and I'm hoping that I get to see more areas. I'm dying to see Ria Spices. That's where I want to go. Okay. And where is that in the country? That is again Spain. I guess I have a thing for Spain. Yes, you do. It's right above Portugal. It's Galicia, and it's called Green Spain. And I think that's why I really want to go there. Is it looks so beautiful? They equate it to Ireland. So you know, oh, really? Kind of like feel like it might be my second Spanish home
1: type thing. Um, oh. oh, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that sounds so good. And Albarino is just so incredible. Oh yeah, it's such a nice dusty white wine. Yeah. So that must be a cool climate that region yeah and very windy and the special
0: pergola the way they trellis is on pergolas so it it just looks so romantic
1: and so beautiful there and that's where i would really really love to go sounds lovely well let's get back to your personal journey you started as a uh, as a microbiologist what did that entail so
0: my husband and i met at work we worked at a food company a large food company And when I started, it was called Lipton, but it then became Unilever. So it's a soup company originally. Yes. Soup and tea. Soup and tea. It was much more food oriented. Today, it's more personal care. You know, that's the doves, the dove soaps and ax sprays and all of that stuff. I know what you're talking about. You used to work at Procter & Gamble. Oh, okay. Crisco and Pampers and Tide. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So I was in charge of microbiology for very specific things. And so like Lipton Original Tea, the one ready to drink, the one that you would pop open, that was kind of my product. My job was to make sure that as it was being produced, that it was safe for you to eat or drink technically, right? and. My husband, at that point, he was wishbone salad dressing. So that's how we met. He would come up, he would create a product and then have to bring it to me and check. And I would have to basically inoculate it with microorganisms. And that's how we determine the shelf life, the shelf stability of it, and whether things are safe or any of those consumer complaints that come in. We have to check if it's micro reasons that people got sick or something like that. So that's how we met. And that's how I started was in microbiology. Wow. So
1: kind of helps with the wine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There is a link. There is a path there. I've heard you say you met over science. That's really nifty. Like, And you continue that relationship, obviously, today with the winery. Yeah, we have some very strange conversations. We joke that when we go out to dinner, people
0: are talking about what's on TV, what's on this? And we're talking about this food product that exploded and what microorganism caused it to explode or why this occurred or, you know, so food chemists, microbiologists, match made in heaven.
1: Oh, yeah. It sounds really geeky perfect. (laughs) That's great. But before you got into wine, you had a detour I guess, into adventure education. What made you leap into that? (laughs) Good call.
0: (laughs) I am really, really hyper, which is actually like why I'm sitting on a rocking chair so that I can rock while I talk. It is very difficult for me to sit still, and microbiology was not a good fit. You're sitting under a hood a lot of times. You're in a lab. You're not really talking to people. I remember one time I was doing an experiment and I was under a hood and it was on a Sunday. I had to go in on a Sunday. So I was listening to my beloved Miami Dolphins and it was against the Jets. And I was working with Listeria, which is really a bad thing. And uh, the... They threw an interception and I got really annoyed and I actually hit myself when I broke the vial. I cracked the vial into my skin, which could have meant that I gave myself listeria. So for like four days, I was like checking the back of my neck for (laughs) meningitis, Like, you know, so I just am not meant to be a microbiologist at all. So I went into teaching. And what happened was I kind of just fell into this adventure ed and it was perfect. So I taught kids how to rock climb at the school. We had rock walls. We had elements in the ceiling that I could drop down. And it really was a cooperative education class. So for the majority of the marking period, I would teach them how to respect each other, talk to each other, communicate with each other and build these bonds that they can trust each other. And then the class culminates in them climbing. So things would come out of the ceiling and one student would be climbing and another a few of them would be belaying them and picking up the slack to make sure that they were safe. We had elements inside. We had elements outside. So I just became the specialist in it and teaching the kids how to harness themselves, what knots to use if they're out and about and they want to do something. So you know, whenever somebody needs something tied to the roof of their car, I'm the one they call. What not? You know, I'm out there tying
1: the knots for them.
0: Oh, so, that's great!
1: And did you move from school to school, or were you based at one school? I was based at one school, sort of like the phys ed teacher. Yes. Yeah, exactly.
0: I was a phys ed teacher. I was a phys ed teacher. I just specialized in adventure ed.
1: Oh, great. And thank you for calling it phys ed versus Jim. It's a little, you know. Oh, my mom was a school teacher for oh, okay. <laughs> 37 years. She taught grade two. But yeah, I have a lot of respect for teachers. You do need a lot of energy for that. You cannot be sit- sitting just in no. your seat. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so then for a while, you were commuting between New Jersey, where you were teaching, and Paso Robles. But maybe we should start off with first how you fell in love with wine. So my husband and
0: I, when we started dating... We were very low on the totem pole of careers. So weren't getting paid very much. So our dates weren't, you know, out and crazy things. Plus I don't eat very much. So, you know, our dates were we would walk to the local shop, right? Which is a food store and pick out a bottle of wine usually from the label, which is why I always tell people sometimes that's a good thing, you know, and then we would go back and he's a food chemist. So he would cook the meal. I would sit there and watch him cook the meal. And then that was our date nights. You know, we'd rent a movie or go to a movie or something like that, but we would basically eat at home over a bottle of wine talk. So that's how we kind of fell in love. And as I say, as we progressed in our careers, we were able to stand up from that lower shelf of the supermarket. We were able to see the eye level wide of the supermarket and realized, okay, there's some difference here. And then as we started to do vacations, we started to say, oh, well, let's try this region. You know, we drove to the finger lakes or, you know, then we started going to Napa Sonoma. And then we just started going to different regions and we realized there was a difference between wine and wine. And I say the experience of your palate changing. The wine that really showed me that there was wine is a 92 Ferrari Carano Chardonnay. Mm. That was the first wine that I got, that I tasted, that I was like, oh my gosh, this is my aha wine. This is beautiful wine. I tell people, you know, palates change because that wine is no longer what I would drink today. It's a beautiful wine, but it's not the wine that I'm like, oh oh my God, now, you know, now, now my palate's someplace else for, oh my God, wine, you know? Sure. So that's how it is. And we just went from region to region and we tried different wine and we fell in love with wine. And as we progressed, we're like, you know, we did one of those make wine with us groups and being the science dorks that we are, the fruit was actually trucked from, this was in New Jersey, the fruit was trucked from Lodi, California to New Jersey. So you can imagine what condition the fruit was in. So we're in there and there's a whole bunch of other people making wine also. And we're in there pulling out the mug, the materials other than grapes. We're ripping out the moldy grapes and we're just putting in the best grapes that we could get into there. And everybody else is making fun of us and they're all drinking and having a good time. But then at the end, after the wine is made, you have a big party and you share your bottles. And everybody's like, Well, why is your wine so much better than our wine? It came from the same place. And I'm like, Well, because we didn't put mold in our wine, you know? Like So we just started doing that. Then we decided, All right, trucking grapes is not the way to go. So we went to Crush Pad in San Francisco and we made wine there. And we made a Syrah from White Hawk Vineyard, which is a very famous vineyard. And everybody was like, this is so good. This is so good. So you get that little itch in your brain saying, I can do this. I can do this. And so in 2013, we decided this is how we're going to retire. So when we can finally really retire, we're going to retire to this winery. And hopefully by then, it's got its name for itself and it's doing that. So 2013 was our first vintage. And we started with Cab
1: Franc at Dracino Wines. Do you still have your day jobs and the winery is kind of the side project? How does this work now?
0: I will be officially retired from my day job on March 1st. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So 100% uh, winery. You know, we're starting to look for a tasting room. We're starting to try to grow a little bit more, but he still has his day job. Okay.
1: Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Lori. Here are my takeaways. I love Lori's story about attending the en premier tasting of the new vintage of Bordeaux wines while it's still in barrels. It sounded exciting, terrifying, and eye-opening. Two, Lori had some terrific Spanish dishes to pair with the luscious Spanish red wine Monastral. And three, I found Lori's insights on how politics have influenced wine fascinating. In the show notes, you'll find my email contact the full manuscript of my conversation with Lori, links to her podcast and website, how you can join me in a free online wine and food pairing class, and where you can find the live stream video version of these conversations on Facebook and YouTube Live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. That's all in the show notes at nataliemaclean.com forward slash 181. Email me if you have a sip tip question and want to be a beta reader of my new memoir at, natalie at nataliemcclain.com. You won't want to miss next week when we continue our chat with Lori Budd. In the meantime, if you missed episode 24, go back and take a listen. In honor of National Wine Day coming up on May 25th, not that we need an actual day to celebrate, I talk about how wine is interwoven in many aspects of our lives, from history and politics to agriculture and commerce. I'll share a short clip with you now to whet your appetite. The dinner table itself is a symbol of modern unity and tolerance. Throughout history, a person's position at the dinner table reflected the social hierarchy. The best seats, and the best food and wine, went to those with the most power. In contrast, King Arthur's court stood for, or at least sat, for equality since the knights gathered at a round table. Today, some of the best conversations happen at the table, and some of the most brilliant ideas are conceived there. Just as importantly, eating and drinking together helps us to understand people from other cultures through their wine and cuisine. Wine has long been a closer companion to food than has hard liquor or beer. The high alcohol content of hard liquor tends to overwhelm food, the reason it's often consumed on its own. Or to paraphrase, wine is fine, but liquor is quicker. If you liked this episode, please tell one friend about it this week, especially someone you know who'd be interested in the wines and stories we discussed. Thank you for taking the time to join me here. I hope something great is in your glass this week, perhaps a savory Monastrell. you don't want to miss one juicy episode of this podcast, especially the secret full-bodied bonus episodes that I don't announce on social media. So subscribe for free now at nataliemcclain.com forward slash subscribe. Meet me here next week. Cheers.
0: This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music. Is wine by Keyvens. Until next week, Slancha.
1: There is always time for a good glass of wine. No
0: no no no. Oh no no no, never let you go oh. oh.
1: No no no, never let you go uh oh, oh. I want a nice glass right now.